If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles for the scripture reading, it can be found on page 869. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, as he went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. Thank you, Drew, and the praise band and all, all of the singers today to really bring us into the special presence of the Lord. For certainly we want to be in his presence as we hear the words that he would speak to us today. We've been studying the gospel and how it impacts not just our salvation, but every area of life. Today we're going to be looking at the gospel and social justice. Now, there's a lot of issues that swirl around the concept of social justice. A lot of questions that it raises. What is social justice? How is it connected to the gospel? How is it connected to the kingdom of God? What scriptural support is there? What extent? What are we to be involved in? How do we apply it? And the issues are so vast that they can't be covered in one sermon. So I I recommend a book if you really want to to study this deeply uh, by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom and the Great Commission. I thank Brandon for for pointing out that book to me, and I'd like to do that to you today. Uh, 
But social justice is certainly not reserved for just evangelical Christians. It seems as though our entire world is fully engaged. Pope Francis has seemed to make it his mission to call us all to social justice. Oh, Bill Gates is, uh, is calling billionaires to give half of their money to social causes. And he said of his own foundation to help in this way. My wife, her students at Boston College, whether they're secular or, or religious, almost every one of them seems to be going off doing service projects, going into the city or into other countries. Our public schools for the last 15 years, Natick High, has required 15 hours of community service. Our own youth just love to go off onto the mission trips to, to serve others. Social justice is everywhere. And one would expect that if we truly understand who we are made. For social justice flies in the face of the survival of the fittest. That doesn't fit. But when we realize that we are each made in the image of God, even though it's, it's tainted in all of us, deep down, we know our fulfillment only comes when we serve others because that's the way God himself is. So while we can't answer all the questions today, I would like us to get started, to begin to explore this concept and really lay a foundation. And I think it's best laid by looking at the passage before us, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the passage that follows about Mary and Martha. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, these are words that probably many of us have heard since we were children. They resonate with us. But now, Lord, we pray that you lead us into their truth, that you guide our lives with what we see here. Open us, each one, Lord, beginning with me, for I know if I fall far short to draw us into the heart of Jesus Christ through these words today. Amen. What we see first of all in this passage is that social justice is grounded in love for one another. It doesn't stand alone. It flows out of love. And we see here that the it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, and he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, when we read this, before we delve into the parable itself, when we read this, it first sounds as though Jesus is teaching a work salvation. You've got to live up to the law to measure up to it. Because the, this religious leader, a lawyer, now this is not a lawyer as we understand lawyers today. This is a scholar who is an expert in the law. Other books of the Bible call them the scribes. And so he knows the law backwards and forwards, and he is 
deeply connected to the law and sees that all of life is about the law. Jesus is all about grace. So when he asks the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He's actually testing Jesus because he doesn't think Jesus respects the law. There have been a number of occasions where Jesus has countered their interpretation or application of the law. He is often eaten with prostitutes, tax gatherers, and sinners, and they see that as breaking the law. So he's already deduced that Jesus does not have respect for the law, so he thinks he's going to trap Jesus, getting exposing Jesus' disconnection from the law. It doesn't work, though, does it? Jesus' answer is, what does the law say? By the, by the way, study the way Jesus interacts with somebody who wants to expose him, somebody who doesn't like him. Notice what he does. He doesn't respond over the issue and say, I'm of grace, you're of the law. You've got to learn that. God really wants us to be saved by grace. No, he works with where that person is at and he finds common ground. Jesus has respect for the law when it's used lawfully. And so he begins on that ground. And then he goes underneath. He, the, actually, the, the lawyer goes underneath. He doesn't just talk about the outward aspects of the law, but he goes underneath to the very heart out of which our obedience to the law should come, love. And that we too need to learn that's where we need to go underneath the surface. Don't argue the surface issues. Bring people to, to look at what undergirds the way they live and the choices they make. And ultimately, they see that it's love in this case. So, while this looks as though Jesus is teaching, you can be saved by being perfect, by living up to the law. He's actually trying to show this man, leading, leading this man to draw his own conclusions, not preaching at him, but helping him to see for himself. Another important thing for us to do with others, not preach at them, but help them to see for themselves. And what he wants them to see is, Yes, the foundation is to love your neighbor. But by asking, by answering the question, who is your neighbor, he's showing this lawyer that he can't save himself. It's kind of like a conversation like this. Somebody might say, well, I I think I, I get eternal life because of the way I'm living. I try to follow God. I'm very sincere. And one might say, well, I might say back, well, how good do you have to be? What, how, how good do you think God wants you to be to earn eternal life? And they'll usually say, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows for sure. And then we can say, well, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us how good we have to be to eter- gain eternal life. And they go, really? Where does, where does it say that? And we say, Jesus said... Be ye perfect, for the Lord your God is perfect. And they go, But nobody's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what the Bible says. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that's what Jesus is doing with this man. 
Yeah, love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Well, he's going to show them that the lawyer falls very, very short of measuring up because his neighbor is the Samaritan. And the lawyer knows he has not been loving to the Samaritan. His only conclusion is, I'm lost. And Jesus is always there to offer grace when we first understand we're lost. We do not measure up. We need a Savior. Christ is there to be our Savior. So, now, what we're going to see as this parable unfolds, the next two pass in the following passage, is we're going to look at Jesus' call to love. And then we're going to look at the extent of that love, the cost of that love, and the source of that love. So, Jesus' call to love, and it's interesting that it comes out of the Pharisee, the, the, uh, excuse me, the lawyer himself. When Jesus says, you know, keep the whole law, what's in the law? What does the law say? Law says, love God with your entire being and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. See, they both agree. In fact, Jesus goes further in, in the book of Matthew. He says, love the Lord your God with everything you have. Love your neighbors yourself. And then he adds, does anyone know what he adds after that? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is going further. He says, yeah, that's the foundation that every single commandment in some way or other grows out of the command to love God or to love your neighbor. So, yeah, you have to love if you're the follower of God. So they both agree on that, and our entire culture agrees with that. I mean, look at our songs from Dionne Warwick, my, my generation, uh, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love, to the Black Eyed Peas, Where is the Love? Our songs all say that love is really the center. We have to have love. The psychologists see that, that we die out if we don't have love, and we thrive when we look after the needs of others and love them. Uh, our ethics say foundational principle how to behave, what to do is act out of love. Even physiological studies are saying it's when we are connected and related to other beings that, that we become physically healthier. Our, the entire world understands what these two men are saying. You've got to love. It's at the center and core of our beings. The difference between the Christian and the secular person, though, is we can answer the question, why? Why is love so central? It's hard to show that evolution shows that. But we know, Christians know, that there is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have been in love with each other from eternity past. Love is at the very essence and core of the being of God. And because it's at the core of his being, 
He actually creates us because he has an overflow of love and wants to bring us into that relationship with him whereby we are so loved by him and then we love him in return and everyone he creates. That's why we have the two commandments. It makes perfect sense. We understand who we are when we first understand who God is. So love is central. And it's important to see that social justice does not stand alone. It comes from love. If it doesn't, then we can compartmentalize our lives. I mean, there are people who give millions of dollars away who have earned those billions of dollars on the back of slave labor. There are those who have sacrificially taken care of a neighbor but haven't looked after their parents in any way. There are those who go on missions trips to care for the needy and come back and live completely selfish lives. God calls us to love across the board, not just in certain areas of our lives. DeYoung and Gilbert, I think, hit the nail on the head when they say, in so many ways, the social justice discussion would be less controversial and more profitable if we stopped talking about justice and started talking about love. We should love wildly, sacrificially, and creatively here, there, and everywhere. But the issue isn't social justice. It do we love. And social justice flows out of that. So Jesus gives us a call to love. But what is the extent of that love? Whom are we to love? And that's exactly what the question the lawyer asks. Who is my neighbor? Now it says he asked that question to justify himself. See, he's hoping Jesus' answer matches the way he's been living. He anticipates that Jesus will say, well, your neighbor is the person who lives around you. Maybe the neighbor is your family. Or maybe as broadly as the neighbor is every other Jewish person. He wants to justify himself, but Jesus isn't going to let him get away with that. But see, I see myself in that lawyer. Because when I think of social justice, and somebody asks me, you know, I ask, how engaged should I be? You know, I'm hoping they say, your neighbor is the person who lives across the street and on your right and your left, and maybe your family and maybe your church, your church members. And I'll go, good. But see, if that's my question, then I'm seeking to justify myself. In fact, through this sermon, I'm asking, and many of you are going to be asking, okay, exactly what should I be doing? And if I gave you four things, you'd go out in those four things, do those four things and say, okay, I fulfill what God wants. I'm not going to give you those four things because we'll be just like the lawyer. Okay, I measured up. It's going to be the Spirit of God who's got to lead you. Love and let Him lead you. Uh, So, I mean, I want... 
my neighbors to be those that I want to give to. There's somebody who lives nearby. I see their need. I see that, you know, they didn't bring that upon themselves. They deserve to have some help. They've been forgotten, and, and I like them. They're a lot like me, uh, especially if they have the same religion and the same politics, and uh, they're engaged in the same activities. They, they root for the patriots. I'm, I, I, you know, I want to I help them. But that isn't the answer Jesus gives here. It would have been difficult enough if Jesus said in the parable, well, there was this Jewish man who was walking down and he saw a Samaritan who was beaten up on the side of the road. And you think, the Jewish person helps a Samaritan? Oh, wow. That's shocking. Because, see, Jews and Samaritans, they clash. Samaritans were seen as half-breeds who twisted and perverted the Jewish religion. They were at odds with other Jews who had gone down and, and uh, torn down their temple. Uh, Jewish people felt Samaritans were unclean. To, to have a Samaritan at your table was the same as eating pork. And the Samaritans hated the Jews in return. They had nothing to do with each other. And so that would have been shocking, but Jesus goes so far that he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Um, You know, there's a lot of heroes out there that aren't Christian, that are doing some wonderful good things. Uh, But the question is, whom do we love? What's the extent of the love? And here, it isn't just the people we like. It isn't the people we're neutral toward. It's even meeting the needs of those who don't like us, those who hate us, and those who are, seem to be enemies of us. See, it's about love, and the breadth of that love is to everyone. Now, in this case, what we see is the Samaritan wasn't uh, reading the newspaper to find out all the different social needs out there. He was walking down the road to Jericho. And he came across somebody who was in great need, desperate need. And so one of the principles we need to understand about social justice is moral proximity. Who has God put in our path? who have needs. We need to be looking out for those. Now, we have a little problem with that because moral proximity today has really become expansive because we read newspapers and we hear the news and we're on social media and we hear about earthquakes and floods and famines and sex trafficking and slavery and injustice and racism How much is morally close to us? Well, certainly those who are physically there are, but we know about so many needs that I think it's right to be considering needs outside of those you know that God would call you to meet. There's a couple other principles regarding this that come from other passages. Uh, One is the whole idea that don't be 
unjust yourself. Uh, scripture is very clear. Uh, Zechariah 7, uh, 9 through 10 says, The Lord of hosts says, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So social justice, first and foremost, begins inside of us. How are we treating everyone around us? I mean, I've known Christians who have been leaders in churches. That I remember when I was working with Vista Volunteers, uh, this man was known for his, his religion. He was a Baptist. He drove the Baptist bus around, and he picked up all the kids, and everybody said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And he was a slumlord making tons of money off of properties that he didn't keep up as he gouged poor people with high rents. Uh, That's not love. The first thing we need to look at is the personal social justice of how do we treat those around us? Are we stepping on the backs of other people? Then, it's looking out for family. When God talks to the church, he says... Look after the widows who are widows indeed. And then what he's meaning there is if there's a widow, but she has family that can support her, they should be the first ones to support. If there's nobody to support, then help them. In Galatians, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So it seems moral proximity, who's right there in your life? of Family? People in the church, but then it says, do good to everyone. Everyone we come across. So, it's all about love. And it's about loving everybody. But what's the cost of that love? How much are we willing to pay? And that's what we see in this passage priest and a Levite come down the road, priest first, crosses the road. He will not help. The Levite comes, will not help. The Samaritan starts taking out the resources he has to minister to this man. Now, I would like to think that I'm the Samaritan. That's exactly what I would do. But I look at all, so many occasions in my life where I am the priest and I am the Levite. The pastors should be the first to care. Walks by. And I can make excuses. All sorts of excuses. I'm sure these, these men had excuses if somebody called them on it. What would be? In fact, I'm going to ask you. Think for a moment. If you were the priest and you walked by, what excuse would you give? Uh, I'm opening it up, actually, for you to answer. Anybody want to think about it? What excuse might the priest and the Levite give for why they pass him by? On my way to help someone else. On my way to help someone else. That's okay. <laughs> Spiritually. Any others? I'm late. I'm late. I've got appointments. I'm, I'd be holding somebody up. They're waiting for me. No, I don't have a cell phone to say, 
Oh, I'm going to be late. I can't text. No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Volunteered at the homeless shelter. I've got that, yeah. Too stretched already. Yeah. You don't think you can help enough? I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You would like to be like the Samaritan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how do you know? I mean, he's still alive. You know, that means the robbers probably just robbed him. They're still around here. You, you guys are great. You're doing great. I think part of the reason it's so good is because, for me, I can come up with those excuses. So many of those excuses are ones we use to not be the good Samaritan in the lives of others. Do I have enough resources? How about myself? But what we see the Samaritan is the cost that he was willing to pay. I mean, he comes and he, he, he ministers to him medically. He takes his resources, his wine and his oil. He pours those out. He starts taking care of them. He gives them the transportation, takes care of transportation needs, puts them on his mule, walks with him. He didn't just bind him up, wait for some, somebody else to come by. He walks him to them. He makes sure there's, uh, there's housing for him. And then he ensures that the man can stay there because he, he, gives, he gives him two denarii, which is probably enough for 24 days at, the, at a hotel there. Uh, but if this man goes longer and he isn't able to pay his debt, This man who's been robbed can be sold for slavery to pay the debt. So he makes sure that there isn't further injustice to this man. He says, anything, any cost, I am going to return and I will pay for it. You see how much he's willing to give. And yes, he risked his life. He risked his life to do this for a man he didn't know most likely for a Jewish man who was an enemy to him. You see, Jesus doesn't talk about a generic road. He doesn't say, and so the man was walking down a road. He says he was walking from the road to Jerusalem to Jericho. That's an 18-mile winding road that goes through some desert. It goes over hills. It's rocks for people to hide behind. There's caves where the robbers, two centuries later, Robbers are still in those caves robbing people on their journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. In fact, one of the passes was called the Pass of Blood that they would go through. That man was still alive. The robbers were probably still around. But he risked his very life for a man he didn't know. You know, Martin Luther King, I think, got it right and really confronts me. And he talked about this, the difference between me and the Samaritan. He said, I imagine that the first question the priest and Levites asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. 
if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's at the heart of social justice. Are we wondering, worrying about the cost to us or are we thinking about what happens to him, to them, if we don't step in to help? So we've heard the call to love, the extent to love to everyone, even enemies, the cost of love, priceless, the source of love. I mean, this is an astounding love. This is a love that I'm feeling guilty about. What resources do I have to love so completely, so fully, everyone, not compartmentalizing good things I do, but loving everybody across the board? Source, we're going to say, is the gospel. And I think this points to that in some ways. You see, the next story ties to this story. See, this good Samaritan offered incredible service in a tremendously needy time. And now the story goes to a woman, Martha, who is providing service to Jesus. And these stories are connected because this whole section for two chapters, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He wasn't just teaching a lawyer. He's training his disciples and he is driving home to them. Your job is to serve out of the fullness of love and compassion. Now he, he enters into Mary and Martha's home and he shows that service has to grow out of first sitting at the feet of Jesus because Jesus is the source of that love. And when we understand that these two stories connect, we begin to answer the, the, address the tension that there has been between the liberal and the conservative church for over a century. When the liberal church adopted social concern as the center of their ministry, and they were so engaged in, in social justice and care for the poor that they pretty much left Jesus behind. Because they said, this is serving Jesus. This is what Jesus wants. But their relationship with Christ, that spiritual dimension and connection, has not been there. But on the flip side, evangelicals have been so concerned about getting caught up in a social gospel that we have often centered on our spiritual, dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the eternal life we have and building churches that we have forgotten to enter into our world and into social justice concerns. But what we see here is it's not an either or. It's a both and. Jesus has told us, be out there meeting needs you come across. But he's saying, first, sit at my feet. Why? One, because it's only when we sit at the feet of Jesus that we will really understand what is good, just, and true. See, there's a lot of issues, social concerns today, where people are at odds about how to respond, even though both sides are saying, it's because I love 
I stand here. And the other side says, because I love, I stand here and we're clashing with each other. Who's right? I mean, one side says, because we love women, because women's rights are so important to us, and we want their well-being, we believe they should have the right to abort the child inside them. They're doing that because they think they're supporting women. Another side says, we are to protect the most vulnerable in society, and there is no one more vulnerable than the child being formed in his mother's womb. We stand for life and against abortion. There are those who stand for great gay rights, they say, because these are people who are as valuable as anyone else. And they have been trampled on, and they have been oppressed, and we want them to be able to come alive and feel like real human beings in our culture and have the same rights, so we support gay marriage. And then there are others who say the institution of marriage is very sacred, and we think it's wrong for society to change that definition, so we do not support it. Both sides are trying to come out of love. Neither side recognizes that about each other. How do we know what is right? Do we simply look inside and say, what is right? And our feelings are usually formed by the culture around us that is here today and gone tomorrow. What's believed today in our culture changes tomorrow. Or do we go sit at the feet of Jesus under the word of God, which is eternal and unchanging, which gives us truth, Truth we can stand on where we build our lives upon the rock and not upon sand. So when the storms come, the house stands. We need to first sit at Jesus' feet to know what is right, to know what we should be doing. And then, of course, we sit at Jesus' feet because he is the source of the love out of which our ability to love others is going to flow. I've shared this before, but I think it's appropriate right now. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, have given at least $10 billion to the Gates Fund. Now, do you think that's a lot of money? (laughs) That's incredible Incredible, unfathomable. I could never give a hundredth of that. Actually, a lot more than that, a thousandth, a ten thousandth of that. I mean, I can't, I can't fathom that generosity. If you ask them, did you give a lot of money? They would say, uh, Warren Buffett's on record for this. No, a lot of people give a lot more than I give. Because I have $60 billion. Giving away $10 billion does not change my life or the life of my family in any way. But what I'm saying is, they're able to give so much because they have so much. We are going to be able to love, as Christ calls us love, only if we have $60 billion of love in our hearts. 
We only get $60 billion of love in our heart when we connect to the infinite love of Christ for us. See, when Christ becomes, then the gospel becomes the resource of our lives that fills us in every need we have for love, then we don't need to be seeking love in all the wrong places. We are already filled, and when we really get filled by the gospel, there's an overflow. We have $60 billion worth of love, and we give, give it away, and we say, I've done nothing from the, compared to the wealth that I have from Jesus Christ. A lot of commentators see Jesus in the story of the, the good, good Samaritan. Um, Because when Jesus chooses the Samaritan to help, it's probably a Jewish person on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The lawyer should be putting himself into that story, not as the Samaritan, but as the Jewish man. That he is the one who is dying by the side of the road. He is the one who is desperately need of salvation. Jesus has just shown him you can't save yourself because you don't love the way the law has called you to love. He's in need of a savior. But who's coming by? The priest, the law, it does not save. But there's an enemy, an enemy of this lawyer, the one that he's just sought to trap who comes by, and he doesn't just risk his life to save the lawyer. He gives his life to save the lawyer and to save each one of us. See, we're all desperately in need. But Jesus Christ loves everyone. He paid the extent he paid it was not just part of his resources, just the threat on his life. It was everything. He stepped down out of heaven, put aside his glory, took on the humiliation, not just of being a man, but of being beaten and ridiculed as a man. He went to the cross, separated from the Father, the love of his life, and suffered a torturous death. That's the cost of love that Christ paid for us when we were dying alongside the road. You see, social justice starts with Jesus Christ. It's receiving his love in the gospel that we become so filled with love. Our lives become about loving. Loving the needs, wanting to meet them, not because we can check off the list of what God's asked us to do, but because we really love the people in need. And we don't first think about what will happen to me? We first think about what happens to them if we do not stop. Our Father, these are words, but your Spirit, your Spirit can take these words, make them real in our lives. Connect us, O oh Lord, especially as we go to the Lord's table right now. It's something we do so regularly. It's easy to go put our brains and our hearts on autopilot. But Father, I pray especially today that we would meet you at the foot of the cross in this table, that you would so fill us with your love 
it will overflow out of us to a world in great need, both physically, but even more so spiritually. Let us be people of the gospel. In Christ we pray, amen.